You're saying I need to hit Beetlejuice rock bottom. Yeah, you got. You have to bottom out. I'm worried about you getting pigeonholed as the Beatles guy. That's another thing. I think that's sort of the least of my worries yeah, at the moment. I, know, I think if I, know, I was pigeonholed as something, that would be quite good. Yeah, I know, but you have so much more to offer anyway. Well, you think so. I have a lot of confidence in my own opinions. I actually don't, and that's part of my charm. <laughs> Hello? Welcome to Beetlejuice. Hello? With Jeff Lloyd. What? Because everything's better with the Beatles. Yeah, it's just something a bit more, because it, it sounds a bit dead when you hear it, just does an intro. How about this, then? Ladies and gentlemen, the Beatles. This is Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Yeah, we'll have it, we'll have it. Before we get started, yeah, I wanted to tell you something I've been keeping from you because it has now corrected itself. This podcast feed is one that I've had for some years. So over that time, it's it's acquired, I don't know, dozens, hundreds, whatever it is of ratings and reviews. And for the first time last week, it dipped... From five stars to four. 4.9. And so th- someone who is your fan... Mm has given this podcast a dog shit review. Well, I think there's a few, and I don't think it's that it's someone who's my fan. I think what's happening is Beatles fans get the wind of the fact that there is a new Beatles podcast. Oh. And it's this guy who maybe they've heard that I do a show for the official Beatles channel. I okay. think, oh, well, he might, must know his stuff then. I'm, I'm going to really get some and good Beatles info, and then they hear this. What is going on inside your head yeah. that you're telling me that? So I didn't tell you last week because oh. I thought it might affect your affect you, but I thought I could tell you now because it's rectified Fuck itself. you. It's what, not to you, to whoever did that <laughs> review. And the reason that I say that is like, keep your fucking opinion to yourself. No one cares absolutely fine to listen to this and go this is stupid i wanted to just hear like very very top of the line beatles stuff but to then go i'm so to this person who wants to go on the internet and rate (laughs) shit because their opinion matters. To you, I say my instinct is that you're a terrible person (laughs) and that I, I, all I'm saying is that you're, you're like, you've got a sad old life. And I want you to know that I think that about you whilst also knowing that I hold in my heart some other understanding that your parents probably weren't that great and were not nice to you. And that's why now... You go around on the internet giving bad ratings to podcasts. Do you think that any of the regular listeners to this podcast will at this point be raising an eyebrow at you getting angry about somebody expressing rageful They bet opinions? not if they're intelligent okay. because ex- express a rageful opinion. But I would never – here's what this guy did. This is what the equivalent of it is. If I'm expressing a rageful opinion about – my marathons or whatever it would be as though i then post posted some bit of promo for this podcast to twitter mm. and added in marathon runners. a marathon right runner. yes it's saying you do the thing i'm complaining about and i want to make sure you know what i think i would be horrified to think that someone who ran marathons heard me expressing my opinion i'd be horrified so so the rule is Say what you like, but not to my face. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. I can go with that. Okay. Hey, I feel like I've ground you down with. That's interesting that you say that because when we sat down, I was like, ooh, he's in a little bit of a mood. No, I'm in in a good mood. I was like, how is he allowed to be in a mood? I'm in a good mood. And then I thought, oh, I bet he's like grossed out because I'm eating eggs right in front of him. The the smell of the eggs is I am sorry about that. But I want to say something has shifted. Oh, do you think everyone wants to hear about how I'm off dairy? 
Probably I don't think not. So. I don't think so, no. Okay. I think well, that is the exact sort of thing exactly. that people don't want to hear. Okay, I'll say really quickly, I'm trying, to not eat, I'm, trying, I'm trying to not eat dairy to improve my skin. Thank you. Here's my first question for you. The camera that photographed the Abbey Road shot, which sold at auction for, did you say, 35,000 pounds? Yes. Who bought it? I, I think it was an anonymous buyer. You know, you know how these things go. It's always an anonymous buyer. Oh, I didn't know that. I didn't know that it was always an anonymous buyer. If you were buying something like that, which I know you never would, would you want the world to know that you had this incredibly valuable no, thing No, but I house? would have thought that it was one of those things that was just public knowledge, like the cost of a house. You know, you can look up what people have paid online for their homes. I thought it was one of those things, like that Sotheby's or whoever it is has just listened. People could go and look. That's interesting. What was interesting, it was, it was only supposed to go, the guide price in the auction brochure was two and a half to three thousand pounds, I think. Oh, that does seem cheap. Did it sell a long, long, long time ago? No, it's a couple of years ago. But what? Why? No, I would think that ca- the camera. In fact, that maybe took it was even last year. That photograph? I, I was genuinely surprised it wasn't more. But it's just a camera. It's- but still, what a piece of. And I'm not into memorabilia, but. It seems ridiculous to think it would go for a couple of thousand pounds. I think maybe there's just more super rich people than there were, and they're more interested in ephemera from the pop culture era rather than Ming vases and stuff. I think that's cool. Yeah. In the 52 years since Abbey Road came out, and you're talking talking about the crossing becoming this like tourist destination... Was that at what point did that was it like that album came out and six months later people were wanting to take their photos there? Is it something that gained traction in the 80s? Like what has there been an ebb and flow where people didn't really do it? Now people do it all the time. I don't know for sure, but I'm guessing it started to go nuts in the 90s. That would be my feeling off the back of the anthology. Well, just just something changed with with the way the Beatles were perceived and in the 70s after they broke up I think a lot of people were ah the Beatles enough already and you would have had people doing it throughout but I think something happened John Lennon being killed uh, a generation from the former Soviet Union projecting this idea of freedom onto the the Beatles and Lennon and then visiting London, just pop culture tourism in general. I I would have thought late 80s, 90s. And that's borne out by the fact that when you Google image it, and I was Google imaging prime ministers, although Thatcher Thatcher one was from the 80s, I think. Why did Thatcher do it? She went on a visit to Abbey Road Studios. There's pictures of her playing the drums. Well, I say playing the yeah, it's uncomfortable. It's it's amazing to me that there are no photos of Tony Blair on that crossing. Why? Because he was that type of politician. He was our you know whatever Bill Clinton was for you, right. or possibly Reagan. You know the glam prime right. minister, um, <laughs> media savvy. It feels like something he he would have done. Right. Are we going to talk about the time we took your family to Abbey Road? Is there much to say about it? It was it was the. Year we got engaged and your family had all come over for. Well, we Christmas. weren't engaged yet. No, it was the you were we, about we, to propose. We got engaged to me. on Christmas Day. Your family came over for Christmas, and as part of that, I arranged a tour of Abbey Road through my contact through abusing my contacts. Oh my god! And it's just it's just brilliant going in there. I mean, even as somebody who isn't obsessive, it's a special place, isn't it? Yes. Are you just saying that? No, I enjoyed going. 
I think you could just smell the history What's that in main there. place, the main... Studio 2. Yeah, that was very cool. Yeah, the way they did most of their recording. But for as an example, so seeing that was very cool. But then you also showed us like a closet where something was recorded or a... Oh, where they went in to do your blues. And then we were also the echo chamber at the back of Studio 2, yeah. And I couldn't... Like, I didn't know that anecdote. Mm. So then you're kind of trying to wrap your head around the fact that this very significant thing happened in this space you're looking at, but actually you didn't ever know what happened. So you can, you know, and in that, in that regard, it, I was probably not the best person for it, but it was very cool. Well, I wish you told me that before I proposed to you. Anyway, so, so then my old, uh, my, my old acquaintance, my old contact ab- at Abbey Road took us into one of the studios where they were in the process of remastering John Lennon's videos on onto dvd and remastering the music for that and she said oh do you want to have a preview and she showed us some some videos and we were really into it and, and we were getting excited and it was just before christmas as we say and then she said oh should, should we uh should we listen to uh, happy oh christmas war god. is over and we're all yeah that's that's festive oh gets my in the mood. God. so she then puts on the video on the big screen uh in the control room of that song and it very quickly becomes apparent that it was ill-advised because poignantly Yoko decided to to make the updated video to that song a political message of people ravaged by famine and disease. Yeah. There's a lot of dying children. And in war-torn countries. So we just she put this video on thinking it would say, okay, it's hey, Christmas, it's Christmas, let's Christmas everybody. Within about 10 seconds, we're looking at horrendous images, as you say, of starving and dying children. But but she can't turn it off because it feels disrespectful to what we're watching. Oh my so we just God. all have to sit there and watch these harrowing images and then at the end all kind of pretend that it didn't happen. I think my dad and I were crying. My mother and sister-in-law were like, oi. And my brother was like, well, that uh, felt pretty festive. <laughs> And then we did get the obligatory terrible photo of you and your family on the cross. it's great. I think it's one of the classics. Well, it's good that it exists, but it's what I was saying. People can't get it right. You're not in stride. You're not all looking the right way. Yes, I did enjoy the detail about how much effort went into that photo looking as natural as it did. But they only did, they did it six times. And I, th- I think it's still quite remarkable that given how many bad photos there are of people on that crossing, just how good that one looks they're well they're very cool they're very good at having the photo taken oh what a gift it's really hard somebody wrote it in one of the beatles books but it's it's really hard to find a bad photo of the beatles if you you think about yourself and four friends you get the waiter to take a picture at the end of a night out there's always one of you looks bad it's incredibly rare to find that i don't know there were a lot of things that were so crazy and special but you know so it's like four people like that i like i'm trying to explain this to you okay let's move on yeah have you ever visited any of the memorials for John Lennon? I've never told you about what, the first time I went to that Strawberry Fields in New York. No. The first time I ever went to New York, of course, like a lot of tourists, I wanted to go and see that Strawberry Fields memorial garden. Although with hindsight, what, what, is, yeah, what, I mean, what's the significance of it? Yeah. It, it, kind, it kind of is. Kind of, it's it's more enclosure. interesting to look at the Dakota up close. Yes, I, th- I think so. But you have your list yeah, you of places. List. So I went there and there's this, this plaque on the ground in the middle, which says imagine in it. And I crouched down and had my photograph taken next to it, like a big daft tourist. When I then got home and looked at the photograph, 
behind me, there was a, a gentleman in a, in a wheelchair. He had quite a lot going on. <laughs> he was also presumably blind and had the dark glasses and a white cane. But on closer examination, and, and this this is the odder part, the flies of his trousers are undone oh. and his scrotum, but not his oh. penis, is out. Oh. And I can't tell you how much time I've spent thinking about that photo because how, how did that happen? Have it? I don't know, maybe on a hard drive somewhere. Oh, it's not like in our boxes, this old stuff. Maybe, maybe. it is. But oh, my God. How, how did, so is it that somebody, he had a carer who was cruel and left him like that? Is it that it was a choice that he made? No, it must have just been a, a happy accident. Right? It's quite a thing, though, to have have the scrotal sack, but not the but, but not the, the, penis. the penile shaft. Out. Don't you think that there was probably like a hole in his trousers, and it just like a little split? Maybe he had like big balls and a small peen, and so the weight of the balls like was wearing away at the fabric. It, it was a lot of scrot. It was a lot of scrot to be out accidentally. I I would. You, you I would posit that having, either either he or somebody else made a choice to have, to have that scrotum, scrotum out. out. Well, if he's not doing great, then that might be a choice you'd want to make. Um, you mentioned like different the way that different newspapers figured into their story, and what is up with all the conservative papers? So I think newspapers in those days weren't perhaps as rabidly political in this country mm. as uh, as they are now. I certainly don't think the Daily Mail, right. which is a, a shorthand these days for a certain type of <laughs> Little Englander, was quite that back then. And what's the difference between the Daily Mirror and the Daily Mail? The Daily Mirror is a left-wing newspaper. It is? Yeah, it's like the working class tabloid. Oh, okay. Um, I missed that. Yeah, I think big on support for Labour Party and unions. Uh-huh. I don't know about the Times back then. I mean, obviously, the Times of London is a, a, is an old newspaper, so there's probably a conservatism inherent to it. But it was pre Rupert Murdoch. Uh-huh. I think I think your answer probably lies in there a little bit. But there's very little you can find about the Beatles having any interaction with the Guardian or the the yeah. Manchester Guardian, as it would have been back then. So, but then as they became politicised. They were really into the kind of underground newspapers, right? Yeah, revolutionary stuff. So perhaps that balances it out. Okay, what is a Maori finale? That is hard to say. <sighs> Maori, Maori finale. finale. I don't think this is great by today's standards. Uh huh. You know the bit at the end of Hello Goodbye, the Hela Heba Hello. Uh-huh. Can you think about what the the general yeah. sound of that and the uh-huh. drums and stuff? When they needed to refer to it amongst themselves, they would refer to that as a Maori finale, probably because in their heads it was that kind of sound, and maybe they were bundling in Maori, okay, hacker, okay. but bunch of stuff all all into whatever that sound was. Okay, a little bit, a little bit of like cultural appropriation. I yeah. think is what we're dealing with there. Yeah. Two comments, not questions. Number one. A thing that got thrown away in the show, which I don't think happens a lot, was Paul's ears ear fascination. That he didn't want any hair touching his ears because he had an ear fascination. Tell me more, tell me more. <laughs> well, 
What so, does that mean? Does that mean he he's interested in other people's ears? Does that mean he has a weird, like I had a friend who had a phobia about touching her neck. Is it more like that? Is it an erogenous zone? To, what are we talking about? The reason I threw it away was I didn't have any more on it. The guy who said it was Leslie Cavendish, who was their hairdresser at one time. They set him up with his own salon like an right. Apple hairdressing salon and on the King's Road in Chelsea. He wrote a book which is above your head at the moment called The Cutting Edge. Uh. But I didn't go to the book to check that quote. I just found it in a newspaper interview he'd given, and that was all he said. But if you want to pass me that book, I can have a quick look now. Do you see above your head there, on top of those records, there's yeah. a red and white book if called I The Cutting the Edge. Potty, is this a good time to use it? What, so you could go for a wee, I could look that quote up, and then we could come back and see if I found anything. It might not be a wee. Oh, okay, yeah. Then that gives me plenty of time. I'm back. <sighs> While you've been gone, I've been leafing through this Leslie Cavendish book. Firstly, I just wish people would put indexes in their books to make this You're kind of You're trying to get easily. me to say this thing. Are you prompting me? I don't think so. No, what were you going to say? I know a couple of very intelligent hairdressers, and I think many of them. But I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I think there's a thoroughness to an index. And if you were to say, who's more likely to write the more thorough book, an academic or a hairdresser? I would think it was an academic. So if someone were to leave out an index, mm. it wouldn't surprise me if it was a hairdresser. But wouldn't that be the publisher rather than the, the well, author? Well, I don't know. I don't know I, how I that kind of thought. stuff goes. And uh, anyway, I've, I've, had a look, I've had a flick through it. I think we... Go about 80 pages before he even meets a beetle. Mm. But I'm not seeing anything. Then I kind of flick through to the bit where he gives the interview to the press, where I got the stuff about the thickest and thinnest hair I was from. so unsurprised about George. Right. Is it's that... very clear to me. Well, when he gave this interview, he, he didn't know that it would be a, a headline and it'd be talked mm. about on the radio all around the world. And Derek Taylor who is the Beatles' press officer and confidant, called him and said, Leslie, have you been talking to the press about the fact that John Lennon might go bald? Oh, God. He says, I would expect a call from John. And then he's really scared because he has seen the sharp end of John Lennon's temper. He's never been on the receiving end of it, but he's seen seen it and heard of it. And then the phone rings. (gasps) Leslie, it's John. Oh, he thinks, okay, I'm going to brace myself. And John just goes, do you really think I'm going to go bald? Oh, my God. <laughs> oh, that causes me such anxiety. I feel like that's something that could happen to me. Not with John Lennon, but with somebody else. Um, I'm sorry to be this banal, is maybe the word? I think the, the, the bar is low for banality. Is, happy, is the worm gun a penis? I am sure that it would have occurred to them because they were smutty. Yeah, they were like little filthy boys. They were. And and what I've come to believe over the years is that if there is a double entendre, mm-hmm. no matter how tenuous, it would have occurred to them. Right. Is there anyone quite high profile who who speaks publicly about not understanding what the big deal is about the Beatles? Well, the famous example of that is the Sex Pistols who, when they fired their bassist come co-songwriter Glenn Matlock, suggested that they'd done so because he liked the Beatles. Wow. Now, I mentioned before that I do this Beatles show in America. We had Glenn Matlock on as a guest. I'm not involved in the, the, the guest booking 
of this show, but it's made very clear to them what it is. The Beatles have an official radio channel on Sirius XM Satellite Radio in America, and this is the the British show, and we invite people who are well-known in America but British on to talk about their love of the Beatles. Yes. And we get them to pick four songs. Glenn Matlock turns up probably an hour late or something to the studio. And as he sits down, he says, I don't really want to talk about the Sex Pistols and I don't really want to talk about the Beatles. Oh, cool. Well, that's no problem. (laughs) You're a really interesting person without your relationship to either of those bands. So what else about you can you share with us? Gross. I had a friend who worked on a talk radio station as a producer years ago. Oh, my God. And... You probably don't know status quo are, do you? I've, I have no, I don't sort, know. Sort of an English uh, pub rock band. One of the two main guys was Rick Parfit. He was married for some time to a woman called Patty, uh, Patty Parfit. If people know her name, it's because her Meaning surname was Parfait. No, Parfit. Parfit. Yeah. Okay. It's just how a do name. you spell that? P A R F I double T. Parfit. Yes. The the only reason anybody would know her name was to do with the fact that she was married to the guy from Status Quo. Right. She was booked to come on this radio show. Oh, my God. As she arrived, she said, just to let you know, I won't talk about my former marriage to Rick Parfit and I won't talk about Status Quo. You're irrelevant <laughs> otherwise. I hate everyone. That's okay. not to say that you've got nothing to say as a human being. It's just no, to say that but, you wouldn't be given this platform. Yeah, of if course it wasn't for, you're worth That's it. why you're here. That's why you're here. And you're thick if you don't know that. Hey, you know that there's that like that flat that we go past on the 73 bus? It's a house. And you're like, oh, Primal Scream guy? Yes. Bobby, Bobby Gillespie. Gillespie. He's yeah. in The Guardian. Oh, yeah? Yeah. Good anecdote. Yeah, it's pretty cool, that anecdote. <laughs> I was like, oh, is that that guy who we sometimes see? And I know, and he, anyway, it's very hard to find a picture of him smiling. All right, then, okay, let's, I'll move with some speed here. Is there anything that you could watch live? So I'm not talking about watching a film. I mean, a concert, a live performance of some kind that you think could, could incite either screaming or tears. I've definitely cried at gigs before Have you ever now. screamed? No. <laughs> you know when you hear about teenagers in the 50s slashing up cinema seats because they're sent into such a frenzy yeah, that by the of, wildness of whatever I'd film they're watching? I'd love to feel that. You seem like somebody who could feel like that. Yeah, I know. <laughs> if I think about the footage of the Beatles at Shea Stadium or, or wherever and you get these uh, young teenage <laughs> girls fainting and screaming and, and hysterically crying, that seems very much in your oeuvre. Do you know that there was a, a fainting spell, like a, a collection of girls fainting at our local high school? No. Yeah, a bunch of girls fainted during some kind of assembly. And I was like, <laughs> oh my God, I would so have been one of them if I was still a teenager. <laughs> If groups of people ever start fainting, I would be, I would number among them, wouldn't I? Have you, did, did, did your mum scream at this? Your mum went to see My the Beatles. My mother loves doing impressions of herself screaming for the Beatles and they're very funny. And you never had any, any well, you never. I'm not a fan. No, you're this not a fan problem. of anything, but you, you've never had that level of fandom I of anything. I think the only, like the most overwhelmed that I think I could feel would be, I think if, I don't think I would scream, but I think I could really have a meltdown. <laughs> If I got to meet Obama or Bill Clinton, I think I could really lose my shit. 
I've just remembered you did have like a little bit of an episode when we saw Helena Bonham Carter in the street. I didn't. That was you an did. episode. You went slightly odd. That's that's did, the I oddest. Went slightly yes. odd. What did yeah. I do? I don't know. It was it was But I didn't I didn't scream. How did you do when you saw Alec Baldwin in the lift that time? Fine, but that's because he was doing so much heavy lifting with me. I was alone with our son in New York. Our son was like nine months old, this big, fat, round baby, and he was in a snuggly in a baby carrier facing outwards. And I was going to see my old therapist. So I wander into this building off of Union Square, press the button for the lift. The doors open. I'm alone. And it's Alec Baldwin. And we should point out at this, point, uh, this stage that you are obsessed with I'm, 30 Rock. You I'm, have it committed to, yes, to memory. It, that That is the thing of which I am a, a fan, an obsessive fan. So it's him... And sort of in the moment where I'm being like, oh, my God, that's Alec Baldwin. He, seeing Gene, just goes, oh, my God, who is this? And I go, oh, this is Gene. And he went, oh, my God, this face. I've got one this. It. And then just starts talking to me a little bit. About, and he's like, you have a wonderful day. That's a gorgeous child. Mothers are like this whole <laughs> thing. And it was it was it was just the most. I just thought this is one of the most powerful personalities I've ever encountered in person. And do you think whatever that was, was Alec Baldwin being a bit out of control and unhinged? Or do you think it's the thing that Paul McCartney has that he realises that no. people recognise no. him and Paul it was, it was takes neither. the tension out of the No, t- because the... he's a, cr- a, a crazy person, right? Like there's an unhingedness to Alec Baldwin yes. that is not true about Paul McCartney. No. So he, he doesn't do that thing that Paul does where he'll walk into a room and go, hey, your trouble, don't you start. You know, just all that kind of breaking the tension. Oh, God. What no. did you think of um, Paul's cameo on 30 Rock? He, he's weird and it was bad, but it was wonderful because it was him. Yeah. Yeah. Um, comment, not question. Yes. I don't think that the Kardashian legacy is all bad. One, I, I was just... You no, know, I know. First I was, of all, it wasn't it was like a, a real a, theory. A you were just talking. Yeah, yeah, it was yeah. cheap. But um, so I think that parts... Like, I, I, not part... Most of it, I think, is awful. Mm-hmm. But I think within the awfulness, there are pockets of goodness. So basically, I think that what are what's expected of women's bodies in in the last decade has improved, and I think some of that can be can be um, attributed to the Kardashians. So you would say that people uh, ten or fifteen years ago were expected to be women were expected to be waifs, and now they're just expected to be slender. Uh, yeah, I mean, it's not like we've. But first of all, generally, I think things have gotten better about the slenderness. But, but yes, I think fifteen years ago they were expected to be waifs, skeletal, skeletal, yeah. and the that has gone away. And I think the Kardashians have had an been part of that. Um. I want to say that high on my list of wishes for myself is meeting the one Osborne child who refused to be on the reality show. Yes, that's really interesting, isn't, isn't it? it? That there's some kid who goes, so two kids are like all for it, and one goes like, "This is bullshit." Like she, whoever I think it's a, I think it's a daughter, and she's got these two famous parents and these kid, other siblings who are like, "Yeah, yeah, we'll go on TV, mom and dad." I mean, it's a p- poor choice in my for whatever, but but that there's someone in that family who has the wherewithal to go. I am not doing this. I think is like a fascinating person 
They must be so powerful and singular. Do you think it's like the monsters? Do you remember the monsters? Yeah. Everybody kind of looked Halloweeny, apart from one daughter who was, was, you know, looked like a kind of blonde bombshell. Yeah. And she was the one who was treated like she was weird and ugly. Yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> Did I, t- I, I interviewed Ozzy. I bet he's, he's supposed to be great. And so is she, is what I've heard. Yeah, I don't know much not much about her. But I, for the again, for the Beatles show, because Ozzy is this huge, huge Beatle yes. nut. And we went out to his house in the countryside. And it's, it was immaculate. Yeah. And, and Sharon was away or perhaps... And did he, he seem coherent? No. 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 He was really nice. When I got there, he was having a singing lesson in his kitchen. Oh, So my I could God. hear him doing vocal warm-ups <gasps> with the singing coach, which you don't think of that type of singer is doing the house was immaculate almost like country hotel immaculate piles of and the gardening taste was magaz- as good as country hotel was it like being at like- yes but but in a way that didn't say aging rock star that more said slightly stuffy place your grandparents had loved to go for uh-huh. afternoon tea but the gardens were beautiful and what was really sweet was that Ozzy had put on a Beatles t-shirt especially even though it's just for radio oh my god oh that's so moving yeah but I mean the the, the truth is that you know what he sounds like. Yeah. What's the problem? I don't know. I mean, is I don't know what he's. Is it, is I don't it, know what he's done to his his brain over the years, else? or how much he just sounded like that to begin or with. Or like maybe but he has a, a disease. It, it was most of what he said was. I'm not saying difficult to understand for the American audience. I'm saying it was just a sound that even I couldn't understand oh. with the odd odd word in it but he was really nice and and so I think sweet. he seems like a great person. I actually. And very funny, you know, really funny. Yeah, and I feel like I'm sort of a big fan of... I don't know much about Sharon Osbourne, but I feel warmly toward her. My problem is the children. Those two kids I'm not really into, especially Kelly. What is it about her that gets you back up? I'm I'm sitting here, I'm thinking, do I draw this out of Sarah or... Do I move on? Well, no. I mean, I don't. I don't think I have anything particularly good to say about it because it's been so long. Like, it's not fresh for me. I just... She had no awareness of her. Like, she's had a career because her parents are famous. I'm not saying she might not know some stuff about fashion. I'm not saying... But, like, every opportunity she has had has been not built off of anything other than her parents' fame, which, fine. Bring a self-awareness to that. Not capable of it. And also, she... I just remember her, like, talking about someone's fashion on that that Joan Rivers show, R.I.P., and um, her being like, know your history. Know your fashion history. Before you go talking, know your... And I was like, you don't fucking know anything. <laughs> I'm going to give you two potential scenarios involving a Hollywood producer hearing this podcast. The first one is if a Hollywood producer of something like The Crown or Downton Abbey or Pride and Prejudice just heard you doing a British accent. Uh-huh. Are you available for yes, yes, period dramas? Yes, I'm available for period dramas. <laughs> Why, yes, I my my diary is wide open and I would love... Right now I'm trying to do a little bit of Camilla Parker Bowles. I'm not... The, the pressure of the microphone is making me do not my best work. But surely you and Charles have been speaking every day. <laughs> all right, all right, all right. And then secondly, if, if a producer of reality TV is listening to this, has heard you, maybe has then listened to you and your brother on another podcast where you gave an interview <gasps> and thought, I would love to do a reality show of the Barons. I'll do you, it. Your brother, your mum and your dad. Yeah, I'll do it. We would be great. We'd be a great family for... So you judge the Osbournes for doing it, but if they ask the same thing of the Barons, you'd, you'd, you'd bite the hand off. 
Yes, and I'll tell you why. <laughs> First of all, as per, you know, to the point about how we started, if Kelly Osborne were to just hear me mm. going off about her, I'm really sorry. And you've probably had your own struggles, and I know that you're a person. And I'm sorry. But I also think you have a little work that you should be doing. Why don't you become an NHS nurse? That's what I would say to Kelly Osborne. Right, right. Um, yeah, no, I would because it would be about my brother. My brother and I would be the celebrities. I think your mom. You would, think she would yeah, be? Yeah. We all would be. Yeah, that's the thing. We all have. So Every would be offer. like the Beatles. Everybody would have their Everybody favorite. Everybody would have their favorite. Yes. Yep. <laughs> yep. That's right. Um, the feature where I ask you some of the questions that you ask your guest. Who would you rather work for, Epstein or Martin? George Martin, I think. Is that I, who everyone would say? I think Brian Epstein loved those boys, and I think their career wouldn't have happened without his doggedness. But he was a guy with his his darkness. And although I think socially he, he could be absolutely charming, just a, a great person to know, but I wonder if some of that darkness didn't manifest if you were one of the people working in his office. This is just some un- unsolicited advice. Yes. When you were speaking to Laura and Ellen, you said... I dip in and out of your podcast. Let me tell you something. I put money on the fact that if you did an interview with someone and over the course of them interviewing you, they said that they dip in and out of your podcast, you'd come downstairs going, can I just say a thing? (laughs) Don't tell me you dip in and out. Tell me that you listen to my podcast or don't mention it. That is what you would say. Okay, here's here's, here's what I was thinking. I am not like... You, you listen to The Daily from the New York Times every day. There is no podcast that I listen to habitually. If I can't fall asleep, I'll put Nothing Is Real or Eggpod or One Sweet Dream or whatever it is on. But I I don't want to leave myself open to being caught out. Well, all I'm saying is I think that someone should be able to hear that and not have a conniption. But I'm just saying if you heard it, I feel you might have a conniption. I think if it was balanced with... The, the type of effusiveness that I believe I offer, okay. I could handle it. Okay. You played back in the USSR. I did. And I'd like to share an anecdote with you, mm-hmm. which then I'd like to you, expand upon. Okay. okay, so basically, do you know that I wrote for my school newspaper when I was 10? You, you were a, a child journalist. I was a child journalist. And in a way that seems otherwise quite out of character, my dad, I, I mean, I might be misremembering this, but... I wound up writing a story about the first McDonald's opening in Russia. Now, I don't know if that idea... Was it an exclusive? It was an exclusive. (laughs) I don't know if that idea came from me, which seems unlikely. I think the most likely thing is that it was my teacher saying, Sarah, why don't you write a story? You think this is too boring? No, no, no. I'm intently listening to you. Or if it was my dad saying, hey, you should... Regardless of what happened, I wrote the story, and then my dad said, call that story Mac in the USSR. It's good. <laughs> it's really good, but it's it's clearly not the it was clearly not my idea. That is clearly a parent saying to their child, here, do this thing. I mention this because you've been doing a lot of homework with Gene that is clearly the work of the adult and not the grown-up. These are videos we should. They're these like videos that you've been making, and they're funny and they're well edited. But it's it's a it it feels like it's the the dad showing what he can do and has nothing to do with the child. 
I just want the teachers to it, like you me. Just I just want, want the, the teachers it's you to saying like to me. the teachers, please like me. I'll leave that there. <laughs> On that original recording or whatever it was of Let It Be, what was not to like about George's guitar solo? I thought it was excellent. You know, he kind of muffs a couple of notes, but it's very different sound to the one that it ends up as. Hmm. Well, I just want him to know, R.I.P., that I really enjoyed the original. Well, I think he would take no pleasure at all in knowing that. Yeah, I'm sure. Which is, is exactly as it should be. And this, again, shows a dis- distinction between me and the person who gave us a shitty review is I understand that my opinion doesn't matter. Of course. Um... Now, well, now I'm worried this is going to come too hard at you after that thing I said about the homework. Go on. <laughs> when you were ta- talking about Beatles Rock Band and how you bought the Sgt. Pepper costume and you were like... I rented, oh, I rented it. You rented it, yeah. fine. And you're like, oh, you know, but I can only share an anecdote like this on this podcast, contextualizing it as though it is about your love of the Beatles. And of course it is, but I think it is more about a person trying to find purpose with their money. I think it's just fun. And fun isn't something you particularly enjoy. I enjoy fun. Well, I think you enjoy fun. I think you're funny. You don't think I'm... I enjoy fun? No, I don't What's think so. What's something fun? Give me examples of fun things. The day Beatles Rock Band comes out, just for the hell of it, going to a fancy dress costume, hire place, and thinking, I'm going to rent a okay, sergeant. Okay, okay, yeah. okay. Yes. You're fun to be around. I think I'm fun to be around. I mean, it's... Uh... No, you just... I, come no. on. I am fun. You know I'm fun No, you're to be really, really fun to be around. I'm great in that way. <laughs> I think I'm fun to be around. But, but you were also... You, you know, you're kind of an eye roller as well. You're, no, I'm you're not. a bit like Darlene from Roseanne. Only in the context of our marriage, not not out in the world. I'm not an eye roller. Then aren't I lucky that I get that side of you? She says rolling. No, I know, I know, eyes. I know, I know. Well, that makes me feel bad for you in a real way. Does your dad like the song She's Leaving Home? The reason I'm asking is he loves a song with a story. If he doesn't know about it, I think you should tell him. Your dad loves a song that tells a story. He does. A very clear narrative arc. The great example being Peter Sarstedt's Where Do You Go To My Lovely. So he's singing about this woman who lives a very uh, globetrotter, glitterati life. The Aga Khan bought her a race course. She's seen in the finest holiday destination. She's impeccable. And then at the end, we realise that the guy singing, they grew up together Poor beggars, begging, Poor kids beggars. begging in raggedy clothes. Where do you go to, my lovely? Why can't I when find... When you're alone in your... You're when you're alone in... Da, da. Yeah, that's what yeah, I can yeah. find. Well, I'm going to now play the longer version of the chat with uh, Laura and Ellen. Just on Liverpool, when you think of Liverpool and the times we've been there, what's your association? I think if someone says Liverpool, the first thing I see is something like a very famous building on the waterfront. The Liver building. The li- so that's the first yes. thing that comes to mind. And then I would think about renewing my, um, like all my residence permits and my spousal permits, all that stuff, because we've gone to Liverpool. Because the there's a big sort of immigration center uh, there. Center there, yeah. Lime Station. Lime Street. Lime Street. She'll never walk down Lime Street anymore. Oh, the judgy guilty founder of Robin the Homewood Bounder. Dirty Robin, no good Maggie May. I forgot Do you her name. have to worry about um, that? Atmosphere? No, what's great is I don't have to worry about that because it's an old, out of copyright, like 18th century song, so it's fine. Oh, great. I mean, I showed my limitations, I think, both vocally and the fact that I forgot the name mm-hmm. Maggie May at the end mm-hmm. there, but e- even so. All right, uh, let's, uh, let's hear that conversation with Laura and Ellen from the Beatles City podcast. Beetlejuice with Jeff Lloyd. Limitless, undying love for the band who did it all. Hi. 
Hi. Who are you? All I really know about you is you're, you're in Liverpool. Tell us who are the people behind the podcast? So we both work for the Liverpool Echo, which is the local newspaper in Liverpool. And we just sort of got this idea that we, we thought we had quite a unique perspective on the Beatles, being from Liverpool, living in Liverpool and in your everyday life, almost coming across people that claim to have known them or drank with them or, you know, sat with them in the pub and all this. So we thought we bring something a little bit different, really, to the podcast world. Um, it was Laura that had the idea to come up with Beatles, Beatles City. Well, they, they do say that if you're from Liverpool, there is somebody in your family with a Beatles story or connection. Do you have one, Laura? Yeah, I have quite a good one, actually, although... Um... It's, it's not really my story to tell, but yes, my um, my uncle Rod was in the Quarryman. So, um, yeah, he was, uh, well, the family joke is that he was replaced by Paul McCartney, but he went on to be a folk <laughs> musician. So I think he was kind of moving in his own direction anyway. That is a genuine one. I mean, it's often, oh, yeah, I knew someone who knew someone who worked with George's dad on the buses. An actual quarryman in your family. That's uh, that's impressive. And I'm guessing, I mean, I don't know, Ellen, maybe you've had a DNA test and you're, you're, you know, you've some relation to Ringo, but you, you can't beat Laura on that, can you? I certainly can't. I think the closest I could ever get was my uncle said, I once bunked off school to go to see them in the cavern. And my picture was on the fr- front page the next day in the Echo. And that's about the closest I've got. But everyone does seem to have some sort of connection or story to tell. And in terms of it being part of everyday life in Liverpool, did you ever feel the compulsion to to rebel against it? I think a lot of people do. I mean, for a long time, it just wasn't something that people were very proud of in Liverpool, which seems completely crazy. Was was there like a real low in terms of a period? Was there a, a, a bottoming out of it? I think when I was growing growing up, when I was a kid in kind of the 80s and 90s, it, it wasn't really. I mean, we talked to people at the cavern and... Um, and they run like this um, magical mystery bus tour, which actually it goes past my house just here. Um, and they say that there just wasn't a tourist industry for it, not locally anyway. And so, I mean, it was, I suppose it, it coincided with quite a bad time for Liverpool, you know, and a lot of unemployment and difficult politics and things like that. So I suppose we wouldn't have had this huge tourism industry anyway, but it was certainly something that people didn't really feel proud of. I don't know if it's because the Beatles all left Liverpool. They didn't kind of you know, stick around. Um, I think people are very proud of where they're from and they get a bit a bit sort of naughty about that, I think. Oh, that's a word I don't hear very much in my life since moving to London is naughty. <laughs> so what was the t- what was the turning point then in in terms of the city embracing the history of the Beatles? I think the hit that the city has changed so much um in the last fifteen years anyway that that we're sort of better at it now. Um, you know, we're sort of proud. Well, no, everybody's always been very, very proud of Liverpool, but has had this kind of feeling that other people in this country didn't really rate the city. Um, and that really turned, and it turned a lot once Liverpool won Capital of Culture, which was 2003. So I think I think that, but I think also, and Alan will probably be able to tell you a bit more about this, but um, that just a younger generation of bands coming through. So you had all these bands in the 80s who were doing exactly what the Beatles did not do and were really kind of fighting against that. And now you've got people in their 20s who are really inspired by the Beatles. I think younger Liverpool musicians are happy to have that link and it's, you know, a nice way to, for them to get into the industry. How, how big a part of everyday life is just finding some random Canadian or 
someone from Japan wandering around looking for Matthew Street? Well, <laughs> I used to go down Matthew Street. We're all working from home now because of the pandemic, but I'd walk down Matthew Street from the bus. So that people from, you know, you just hear amazing accents and different languages all the time. But I live... Um, just sort of two roads away from from Strawberry Fields. And um, it's quite a, that road has a lot of speed bumps and a lot of potholes. So you go quite slow anyway, but you get to that point and you can just, you can just see the people sort of standing, standing looking at Strawberry Fields and ready to back onto the road. You've got to slow down your car really, really slow in case you like, you know, hit a tourist. Um, yeah, it's, it's everywhere. And because I live in Walton where John Lennon grew up, you can just be walking past St Peter's Church, where Eleanor Rigby's graveyard is, uh, grave is, sorry, and then, um, yeah, hear all these different accents and see people with their cameras. It's, I say it's every day, not at the moment, but usually. It's so amazing because these areas, if you think about where you're, you're talking about Walton or nearby where Paul grew up, if the Beatles weren't from there, there, there would be no tourist traffic at all. And then to visit these places and see coaches and crowds of people taking photos it's it's quite surreal like finding a bunch of tourists in the middle of a housing estate <laughs> you can always tell i mean if i'm ever around town just shopping or just walking through on me break and work you can always tell when a cruise ship is in they'll just matthew street will be busier than usual and i'll go hey there's a cruise ship in and then you know I'll go, on my way back i'll have a little look and the will there'll just be one there and you can just always tell because that's where they flock the flocks are the usual places so the podcast itself then how did it happen i suppose i'd listened to an awful lot of them over over um while i was on maternity and i just I think the medium's just brilliant. I just love, I love it. I love the way I turn on my phone and there's one waiting for me. And we just got talking, didn't we, Ellen, about we sort of wanted, yeah. wanted to get involved in one and then it just seemed so obvious. And then the more we talked about it, the more we were kind of thinking about how we had a different perspective and that people in Liverpool have a different perspective because, like we've said, it's just part of our lives here. You know, like um, my my daughter, her rainbows, um, that she goes to, you know, little like brownies, but for smaller children. You know, that's in the church hall where where John Lennon met Paul McCartney. It's just it's part of our lives. Um, you get the you, we go drinking on Smithdown, which is right next to Penny Lane. You know, it wouldn't you say, Len? It's just very much. It's just it is part of our lives, and then we we, we love the idea that everyone's got a Beatles story. We wanted to share some of those. I was saying that something I love about the podcast is that even though the Beatles origin story has been told endlessly. In some respects, it's not that well documented. The stories haven't been captured like all the stuff after they became famous. Yeah, definitely. And I think it's it's almost like it did happen overnight for them. You know, that's how people say it happens overnight. And next thing, they were, this, they were the Beatles. But of course, it, in real life, it didn't happen like that. And there were these smaller stories and there were these, you know, little changes to the band and the lineup and this and that, that you like you say, you ne you hardly ever hear of because they left it behind. When they did finally get bigger, they left that behind and they didn't speak about that anymore. So I think that's, yeah, the, the sort of different perspective we bring to it. We we speak to people who knew them at school. We had Helen Anderson on who would make clothes for John so he could look cool, you know, when he was, when he was going on stage, things like that. And he, I suppose he never really would ever speak to her. Why would people know about Helen unless they proper went looking to find information on it what does it unlock about them and their story i think i mean that that alone that little anecdote just shows he he always wanted to be you, 
John Lennon. He always wanted to be, you know, this rock star man, even when he was in school and he was in our college and the teachers were telling him to stop messing around. He was always just joking because he always wanted to, you know, be the centre of attention. Not Maybe not in a show-offy way, but he just always thought, you know, maybe I'm a little bit better than this. I'm a bit better than these guys or... He'd say um, he used to ask Helen if she could tighten his trousers. So he'd give her his trousers and she'd take them in for him because he thought that slim, slim trouser look was just cooler. And he wanted to be different to everyone else. So I think it just shows that they were very, they knew what they were doing. You know, I think a lot of people can say that maybe they were just, it, yeah, it happened overnight and they were just lucky. They weren't even looking for this type thing. You know, they were just this amazing band, but uh, they very much knew what they were doing, I think. I think it's just that they could have been the kid in your class or or you or even or I mean they're just extraordinary weren't they and it's so fascinating that they were just ordinary people from ordinary backgrounds with you know yeah. their own problems and their own lives and um school friends and I, I think that's what's so inspiring that they completely change music. They, they change the world in so many different ways. They change the way we think about so many different things. But at one point, they, it was just the kid in your class. One of the guests you've had on is uh, Pete Hooter. Now, people might recognise his name from the band The Farm. And he, he now has a role in Liverpool as chair of the Beatles Legacy Group. What, what are they doing? What is, what is the work of the Beatles Legacy Group? They're trying to work out how the city can benefit from the Beatles and also um, young musicians as well. Um, there's so much more that we could do. And I love the idea of, of moving it all forward and inspiring other young musicians. Because they're very good at that. If you think about the Beatles, they are very good at doing that with their own legacy. They're constantly reinventing it for generation after generation. So I guess it's about the city tapping into that instead of old American boomers who remember seeing them on the Ed Sullivan show. <laughs> Yeah. And also Paul McCartney does it, doesn't he? I mean, he he's very much involved with the Liverpool Institute of Performing Arts, which is in his old school. Um, before the pandemic, he came back every single year for the graduation that they have here. And um, I used to get invited to them and he would shake every single student's hand, every single one, you know, and they'd all be trying to slip him a CD and this kind of thing. But um, I mean, that must have been exhausting, but he just smiled and shook every hand. And it didn't matter. He'd be in the middle of a tour and he'd still come back for it. He's had a lot of practice, but it's still very impressive when you think of the amount of megastars who don't do that. Yeah. And he does these, you know, like, he's right there at the top. Yeah, he does. Um, he does like these secret lessons with them as well, like secret songwriting workshops and things which we would love to get in on but we but, um, <laughs> he's very subtle about it and I'd be amazed if that happened you you've talked to people who were in the Beatles orbit like Frida Kelly who was one of the fan club secretaries who there was a brilliant documentary about her a few years ago called good old Frida how reliable do you think at this point people's memories are I think maybe um the sm small anecdotes, I think they're more likely to be real as it happens because, you know, there's, there's, you can't really sway either way with it. So Frida told us about, oh, I remember I, you know, cut Ringo's hair once so I could send it to, um, send it to some of the fan club members in, in, um, envelopes. Like, I don't, I don't know why that would be, you know, fabricated. That was obviously actually happened so I think maybe it's this it's the smaller little things like that that they don't even realize you know they're telling us something really interesting maybe that maybe they're the best the best parts yeah 
whose sort of anecdotes, whose whose memories have been the most memorable to you? I think I'd have to say John Lennon's sister Julia. Um and I've interviewed her a number of times. I interviewed her when she hadn't really been interviewed by very many people before, quite a long time ago. Um, and then a couple of years ago for the podcast. Um, and there was probably 10 years longer between those two interviews. And the way that she speaks, she just speaks with such passion and pain, I'd say. Um, it just, it it never feels like she is just saying those stories over and over again. She just lights up when she talks about her mum and John dancing around the living room together, playing music, you know. Um, and then when she talks about um, how left out she felt and how other people in his life were sort of left out of the story after he died um, and obviously coming to the ter- coming to terms with his death. Um, I felt very honoured for her to share those memories with me. They're clearly just so vivid for her even now I think whereas a lot of people it is just a great old anecdote isn't it that they've that they've told for many many years and and it, the edges do kind of wear off and they get into a certain way of telling it that they know is the best way of telling it but for her it was like she was there when she was describing things do you have one Ellen I think he- Helen Anderson for me it was it was a part of the Beatles I'd never I'd never heard of before and it was them when they were in school and they would sit around in the canteen and play these covers of these songs so they hadn't even you know put pen to paper themselves yet and I guess I suppose they weren't even the Beatles were they they were just lads sitting around and having a jam and she talks about how John would pay her for the little alteration she'd do to make him look cooler and he'd pay her in sketches because he, he didn't have, you know, much money to be throwing around on getting his pants made tighter. So he'd draw a little quirky sketches and almost, you know, quite cocky say, you know, these will be worth something one day. And which they obviously were, you know, she kept them all. She had, she showed me she had something about that, you know, really thick of sketches that she had of them that much must be worth a fortune now. Um, So, yeah, I think I think that was nice. Wow. That was a nice perspective because um, she t- for her it was just oh this silly silly lad at school I mean we we probably all knew lads like that when we were in school so that was a nice perspective to get I've asked you to pick a song I mean I feel bad at the best of times asking people to pick a Beatles song because it's so (laughs) difficult to narrow it down to one but when there are two people having to choose the no isn't easy but what what have you uh, reached consensus on so we've picked in in my life and why in my life well because it's been quite um, topical for us at the moment at the Echo, but also as Beatles fans, because the the original lyrics, um, well, if you can even call it the original lyrics, but, you know, what they first put pen to paper on, they mentioned the Abbey, um, which is a really old cinema, and um, basically Lidl, the supermarket brand, wanted to take over the Abbey in Wavertree and turn it into a shop. And only just recently, last week or the week before, um, they lost the fight to actually turn it into the little, so it's going to be kept. Yeah, I saw, I saw this yeah. in the news. They were actually going to knock it down. So everybody's been very upset, and it's we've just heard that it's going to be listed. So it's been saved. All right, well, I'll play in my life in a minute. Before I do so, some quickfire Beatles questions. First one, which Beatle do you think would have the best personal hygiene? George. I think Paul, because he's just meticulous about everything. Which 
family, the Harrisons, the McCartneys, the Starkeys, the the Lennons, which would throw the best family party? The McCartneys, I think. I know other Scousers like Paul and they and they are just the life of the party. So yeah, I think the McCartneys. Um yeah, I would totally agree with that. And they do they do have good family parties. He's, from what we know, he's always coming back for them. Casbar or Cavern? I'll say Casbar because I've I've never been. Who had the best beard? Um, George, I'd say, when he had his kind of his hair going on and his I'm not a beard lover, you see, so I like him clean shaven. <laughs> what is the biggest unsolved Beatles mystery that you would like to solve? Um, I would like to know where Mal Evans' missing archive is. Yes, you did a great episode on this. Yeah, um, he he had all this stuff that was just the day-to-day stuff that he collected being part of their lives. And then he, he died and it's we don't know where it is. Who would you rather work for, Brian Epstein or George Martin? George, I think. Uh, yeah, I would have to say the same. Just just to be in those recording studios, I, I would have done anything. Who would your fantasy guest be? I'd love to get like a one night stand of John Lennon's or something. Do you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> I'd just love to get like um, some American girl that like spent a night with him and didn't know till like a week later. Oh, that was John Lennon. Like, I'd love that. <laughs> what kind of detail are you after here? <laughs> I don't know. I just love to know how he went about himself. Like, did he go over there and how say... How he went about it? This would be a big tonal shift for your podcast, <laughs> I feel, at this point. Thank you so much for coming on and, and, and chatting to me. Um, I dip in and out of your podcast and have done for a while, and I really enjoy it, and I encourage other people to do the same. Um, before you go and before we play In My Life, in the time it takes for you to be drowned out by the A Day in the Life Orchestra. What is it about these guys, as you said, they could have been the boys in your class at school from Liverpool, all born within five or six miles and a couple of years of each other. What is it that we're still talking about them all these years later? It's just the music, the sheer, like the collection, the the, the evolution of them. I think it's that they, they never stop pushing themselves and they just... Yeah, they they tried everything, didn't they? They never they were never satisfied. And... Um...